welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. I'm Tim. And today we continue our second season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. In this episode, we continue our focus on the on religion and rhetoric by discussing the power and mystery of apocalyptic rhetoric. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Kai edan, kai idu, hippos, chloros, kai ho kathemenas, epano, onoma auto thanatos, kai ha ades, ekaluthe metautu. So Tim, what is apocalyptic rhetoric? It's the type of rhetoric that deals with the end of the world or of mankind. So kind of like that time that girl dumped me in high school? Yep, very much. Maybe it's the rhetoric about how the world will end, a prophecy of sorts. Some call it an extreme reaction to a moment of crisis. Remember that Chicken Little reported the sky is falling after an acorn fell on her head. Tim, tell me about the idea of the apocalypse. All right. So basically, there's three ways in which this idea of the apocalypse uh, connects to religion. First, the Greek word apocalypse means revelation or unveiling. Many religions hold their sacred scriptures to be the revealed word of God. Also, natural disasters are often perceived as evidence of God's unhappiness with human behavior. Finally, many religions deal in the business of eschatology, or the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. And we're talking about rhetoric that's dealing with the apocalypse. We're not necessarily talking about the end of the world when we're talking about apocalyptic rhetoric, it's about the perception and discourse about and surrounding, quote unquote, the end of the world. So it's a pretty popular and longstanding subgenre of rhetoric, which looks to be a hybrid of deliberative, as in what ought we to do in response to the impending apocalypse, and epideictic, as in taking note of the present moment and its impending horrors. Barry Brummett tells us that apocalyptic rhetoric always includes these three main themes. The first is bemoaning of the present situation. There's some sort of anxiety or some sort of uncertainty about the present and the future. The second theme is uh, there's, an, there's an expectation of an imminent apocalypse. It's not that the end is coming. The end is right now near. It is in our face. And the last theme is foreseeing a golden millennium, right? It's the start of a whole new world full of goodness, greatness, and all the joy and happiness that comes with it. Yeah, and and that last one, I find that a little curious. So I get the whole notion of rebirth after catastrophe. For example, what happens after a forest fire? But I would think a divine apocalypse would indicate an end without end, you know? Yeah, like that time that girl dumped me in high school. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what I guess what I'm running up against is the difference between linear time and cyclical time. I think of Western philosophy and Judeo-Christian religions as operating for the most part on linear time. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. It's uh, perhaps in different cultures, apocalyptic rhetoric is, is different based on the cultural conditions. Makes sense. Right? Yeah. And so that brings up this point of the audience, right? Who are the exact audience and and what do we know about the audiences of this type of of rhetoric people who generally are the audience to this are isolated individuals or subgroups some people that don't necessarily fit within the mainstream or have different or moral or ethical values than the majority and that kind of feeds into that 
uh, hopelessness and meaningless of the present, right? These people who've lost their beliefs in the value system, uh, uh, that's who primarily responds to this type of discourse. What about people who just happen to have been hit by a tornado or volcano or a plague of locusts? Is that enough to throw some otherwise mainstream folks over the edge? When you think about, you know, tornadoes destroying people's homes, it's usually um, what in Tornado Alley, right? Through uh, the plains. And usually when you think of people who live in the plains, it's, you know, we're not talking well-to-do big city suburbs and things like that. I mean, you got Tulsa and Tulsa is a very nice, very nice town, but it's not New York City or Los Angeles. So you wonder if a tornado destroys your home, your trailer park, what have you, they always say, we're going to rebuild, we're going to do this. And that might be because there might not be much there to build from as compared to somebody who's, you know, a millionaire with giant mansions. That so I guess sense. the point I guess the point here is that tornadoes uh, discriminate uh, against people based on class. They could well do that. So um, with this apocalyptic rhetoric, a speaker shows up and makes sense of everything for them. So the people follow that person. The overall theme these writers make are what's happening is happening on purpose. The main event is coming. It's supposed to be this way. So, so the current dumpster fire we're suffering through is just the undercard. The real reason we came to this wrestling match is about to enter the arena. It's cause and effect. There is no possibility of reverse. And I guess the whole news cycle is different from a reverse. When the clock strikes midnight, a new day starts. But when the clock says 11, we can't turn it back to 10. Perhaps that explains some people's climate change denial. It's not just because they don't want to give up their 12-cylinder Lamborghinis. They actually subscri subscribe to a millennialist view of the irreversibility of the apocalypse. You know, uh, uh, you bring up a good point talking about the environment there. There's one study about apocalyptic rhetoric that deals with the environment. And they found that in conservative news sources and news outlets that the, um, the environmental catastrophe uh, climate change, what have you, is really described in apocalyptic terms. It's the end, the, uh, it's out there, there's really nothing we can do about it. But in more liberal, uh, left-leaning news outlets, they talk about the uh, uh, climate change in the exact opposite way. It's not that it's out there, it's happening, it's, it's, it is happening, but it's something we can control, something we can influence. You know, you think of uh, the apocalypse as you cannot resist it, like climate change for, for certain groups. The drawback to that is that we can do something to change the climate, and therefore we shouldn't talk about it in such apocalyptic terms. Yeah, it seems, you know, speaking of it in apocalyptic terms is uh, sort of uh, counterproductive if we would like to fix it. And so in all this discourse, the world didn't make sense, right? But now you have a rhetor, a speaker who's making sense of it for you. And, and now that you kind of understand it, uh, you have some sort of control. A speaker usually does this by using some sort of grounding text. So once they have this and they can interpret things, they can make sense of their meaningless world. I'm thinking of people who, you know, may have gotten off on the uh, wrong path in life, got into drugs, something like that, got into a bad lifestyle, and then they come find, you know, uh, the good word of God in the Bible. That's their foundational text to help them make sense of what happened in their life and how to address it. Yeah, and, and this can be done by explaining how events are leading to the end. Or you start with the grounding text and apply it to something similar but different. 
the mark of the beast goes away. We don't talk about that, but we start talking about your social security number yeah. or the tattoos. Right. So, and this brings us back to chicken licking and the sky is falling, which is a variety of folk tale or chain tale that relies on a series of events, each more catastrophic than the one before. And it can be done through argument or dramatic narratives. Yes, good stories. And since that new world is coming, that new world is so perfect, the old world's been completely wiped out and stability is coming, right? Yeah. And we can see examples. People who study apocalyptic rhetoric have looked at the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, even the U.S. Civil War. Indeed. And, and more recent examples are in the year 2000, we had Y2K. Mm -hmm. We had the banking crisis in 2008. We have pandemics. Uh, we have regularly people referring to World War III. And that girl who dumped me in high school. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so take home points. Here's my take home point, Tim. Uh, contemporary apocalyptic rhetoric, it's not just about the end of the world. It's about a rhetor creating a perception of the end of the world. And that you as the audience or the, whoever the audience is, they need to follow that leader, that speaker, who will help you be on the right side of judgment, right? Be on the right side of what's to come, the glorious new millennium. And the power of apocalyptic rhetoric comes from its ability to dispel chaos and provide some understanding and direction. While the end of the world might be coming and there's nothing that we can do about that, we can do certain things to prepare for that. And I think that's a key distinction. I think you're right. In other words, it's not about the end of the world. It's about the perception of the end of the world and how people can work within that. Just because the world is ending or appears to be, that doesn't mean we're entirely hopeless. We can still have agency to do things inspired by rhetoric until the end comes which hasn't happened yet, despite the numerous predictions of such throughout human history. All right, Tim, you ready for your challenge? I am. The challenge builds off that very last thing you said. There have been, and I counted, at least 10 bazillion examples of apocalyptic rhetoric in human history. As you know, the world has not ended yet. So why is apocalyptic rhetoric so effective? That's a good question. I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, there are people who are uh, basically, um, they like to catastrophize. There's a certain situation and they feel that if they just make it, you know, if they're more emphatic about it, then something can happen. So uh, we're not all entirely realize, uh, realists. Also, there's this notion of, there's a, there's a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Flo Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he was a psychologist who actually won a Nobel Prize in economics. And one of the things that he pointed out is that the so-called rational man that makes a decision based upon costs and benefit, what we do is we overestimate risk and danger and we mm -hmm. underestimate opportunity. And so there's probably an evolutionary reason for this. The people who were overly concerned about tigers were the ones who didn't get eaten by tigers and their offspring uh, lived on. So we have possibly a uh, sort of inborn tendency to overestimate uh, threats and dangers. Uh, Tim, just a follow-up question on that. Was your reference to uh, animals there in reference to their very popular Tiger King series that's on <laughs> Netflix right now? I, I did not think of that, and I have not actually seen any of this, but I do believe that Carol Baskin actually fed her uh, late husband to the tigers. Yes, yes uh, we're, we're on the same page there. All right, yeah. you got a challenge for me? 
I do, Dave. Okay, so recently uh, we were encouraged to you know stock up on two weeks worth of groceries, and and I did that, and that's fine. But I am not someone who would ever become one of these preppers who gets like you know a year's worth of groceries and lives mm-hmm. in a hole. But you, Dave, as a family man, you might sort of look at things differently. So I'm asking, what situation or what argument? would cause you to go full tilt prepper, where you basically get a bunch of groceries, get some guns, you know, uh, go into a, a, a stalactite cave in Arkansas. What would make you do that? I like how that question assumes that I haven't already done that. Um, uh, just to be clear, you know, there's the COVID-19 going around right now. We're, we're, we're locked down in here in New Jersey where we're at because it's pretty, pretty bad. Uh, um, Nothing would make me get in a cave, get guns, or anything like that. Uh, getting to the theme of this episode, I'm one of those people that recognizes if there's something that cannot be overcome, you must learn to recognize that. However, as a red-blooded, barrel-chested, freedom fight of an American, I believe that any obstacle can be overcome. So I don't necessarily think like that, although I always make sure I have plenty of milk for the children but I also know that I drink plenty of milk so I can go out and buy more milk for those welcome respites. All right, Dave, you continue to ratify my belief in you as a fairly rational person. Yeah. Beats the alternative, I guess. Right? Yeah. All right. We good. Yep. We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Okay, I've got one fallacy and one figure. The That's fallacy, a twofer. That's a twofer, Tim. It is. The <laughs> fallacy is one we already touched upon in season one, namely the post hoc ergo propter hoc. After this, therefore because of this. A rise in crime occurs after prayer is banned in public schools, so some argue that the rise in crime was because prayer was banned in public schools. When in reality, there could be several more reasonable conclusions about what led to the rise in crime. So some apocalyptic rhetoric that follows an earthquake could be trafficking in the post hoc fallacy if it claims that the earthquake happened because the people had displeased the divinity. And now for the figure. The figure that is frequently found in apocalyptic rhetoric is auxesis or increase. and refers to a variety of ways that rhetors build up the emotional content of this discourse. It includes things like hyperbole, exaggeration for effect, and also climax, a series of clauses building in force. For example, in Revelations 9.4, when the fifth angel blows his trumpet, we get locusts, but not just any locust, but locusts equipped with scorpion stingers. And not just scorpion stingers, but the locusts are armor-plated like battle horses. They're wearing crowns. They have human faces with long hair like women and iron teeth. That's some pretty rich auxesis right there. You know, Tim, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) All right, Tim. Who's sponsoring this episode? Today's episode is sponsored by the Lavender House Scapulas and Amulets, which offers a wide variety of medicinal herbs long held to ward off diseases, including but not limited to both viral and bacterial pneumonia. Featuring the finest in wearable cinnamon, oregano, black pepper, rosemary, allspice, turmeric, sage, and nutmeg, discreetly encased in attractive, yet believed to be effective neckwear. We also carry a full line of amethyst crystals long held to guard against the pernicious effects of immoderate alcohol consumption. The proprietors of Lavender House scapulas and amulets are no charlatans. We carry no snake oil, 
nor do we encourage the wearing of garlic to ward off vampires, because as anyone knows, vampires are not real. However, viruses and bacteria are real, and so are the organically grown medicinal herbs we pack into our scapulas and amulets. Plus, starting this flu season for the first time, our herbal defenses are available in tinctures suitable for use in conventional vape pens. So if you wish to guard against the viral or bacterial pneumonia, you really owe it to yourselves and your loved ones to visit Lavender House Scapulas and Amulets for the most potent herbal-based antibacterial neckwear, and this season available in vapable tinctures. That's LavenderHouseScapulasAndAmulets.com. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric rama a podcast about all things rhetoric. We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago. Frederick Arama is typically recorded at Casto di Pado Studio, but because the government is telling us what to do, uh, we're not. So if you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us at rhetoric.fun or consult your local library when it opens.